This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. This is Christopher Melke. I'm here with Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio Show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Professor Georgi Sunyi. Uh, professor Sunyi is a professor at the Departments of History and Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. He's also a professor at the University of Szeged at the uh, English Department and Hungarian Studies Center uh, as well. So um, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, and I feel distinguished to be able to speak about myself and my interests here. So, um, well, we're very glad to have you, especially since uh, looking at over your CV earlier, there's a huge range of topics from English literature to the occult and mystery to... um, symbols of power, and I I just thought I'd start uh, talking, if you don't mind, um, a little bit about uh, some of the work that you've done uh, regarding English literature. Before that, I might want to, to mention that since my school years, I was facing two possible ways or roads to go on. Okay. One option is that you become a, a specialist of a narrow field and really make a big name of yourself in that very narrow field, or you stretch yourself and enjoy a lot of things. And I think I've chosen the second. <laughs> well, I think, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that, um, especially since in terms of the... It's very tempting once you're researching something very in-depth to sort of lose sight of all else. Uh, You know, you're so sucked into, um, in my case, studying Hungarian queens that I have to remind myself that the world does occasionally exist outside of my thesis. (laughs) Oh, that's a nice topic. Well, as for me, I originally was, uh, my alma mater is Szeged. I I graduated Mm -hmm. from the University of Szeged, and I was, uh, at the beginning, Hungarian literature and English major. And in being a cross-section of two cultures, I always saw myself, even till today, as an ambassador of one culture in the other. So in mm-hmm. the English-speaking world, I try to propagate Hungarian culture, literature, and vice versa. I've been teaching English culture and literature mm-hmm. uh, for Hungarian students. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're talking about uh, uh, English and Hungarian literature, what sort of time period uh, would you say is sort of your specialty or time period or um, authors? This is actually quite an interesting story, if you don't mind, of my telling about it, because it also explained my interest in the occult and esoteric fields. When I went to university uh, in my Hungarian literature seminar, the first semester was devoted to the Renaissance period, early Hungarian literature. Mm -hmm. And I was rather arrogantly ignorant and uh, not really interested in that topic. I came to university with a Uh, with an interest and uh, a devotion to the modern. My favorite thing was the avant-garde, and I wanted to deal with modern things. And Mm -hmm. uh, my seminar leader told that uh, each of us had to choose a topic related to the old Hungarian literature. And I told I was not interested in that. Give me something modern. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, here's a novel, which is about the, the, the Rosicrucians, set in the 16th century, but it's also a 20th century crime story by an excellent Hungarian writer called Antal Serb. The title of the novel is The Pendragon Legend. By the way, it has an excellent English translation Mm -hmm. and uh, has been selling pretty well in in the UK, where it was published a few years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And this is how I fell into this topic, the Renaissance, the early modern period, and occultism at the same time, because uh, it's uh, very heavily about uh, Rosicrucian mysteries and, and esoteric ideas and alchemy and this kind of things. So that was the first year of my university studies, and ever since I, I've been... Oh, by the way, this novel is, although it's written by Hungarian, it's set in England, and mm -hmm. it tells a lot of funny things about English culture. Oh, very cool. So um, for me as a historian and archaeologist, I do have to ask, um, you work primarily with sources of literature. Uh, this is sort of an awkward question for me to ask, but in, in your opinion, what way can literature be used as um, sort of a historical source? One of my very influential early readings was The Social History of Art by Arnold Hauser, who was a Hungarian origin art historian and moved to Germany and finally settled in England and uh, made a big name for himself, mm -hmm. primarily with this book, The Social History of Art. And in the introduction of that book, he tells why and why this way he wrote that book. And he says that his main motivation was to find the to find the motivation of different people living in different period, why they decided to express this or that idea in this or that particular way. So basically stylistics is uh, and has a very strong ideological background and has a historical character and in a way period characteristic feature. So that's more or less my motivation. I've been also interested in reception questions, uh, the transmission of culture, how how generation after generation receives and interprets the same kind of things. And this is, this is history. This is historical dimension. So in this respect, I call myself a cultural historian or intellectual historian. Okay, so how ideas evolve, how they change, how they're moving from one place yes, to another. Yes, yes, definitely. Okay, and um, in terms of uh, practical matters, um, are the sources that you're mainly interested in, are they printed or... Are they still mostly part of a manuscript tradition? To some extent, I've been uh, dealing with manuscripts as well, especially my main hero, who is a 16th century Englishman, uh, magician of Queen Elizabeth I called John Dee. And he uh, actually he was the topic of my master's thesis at the mm -hmm. University of Szeged, and ever since I've been dealing with him. Uh, primarily, I chose him because he was a traveler who traveled to Poland and Hungary, so he actually physically lived and had contacts in this region. On the other hand, the very interesting thing was that he wrote various types of very curious diaries, and these diaries survive in thousands of manuscript pages. Some of it has been published, of course. So anyway, in this respect, I dealt with manuscripts as well, but my primary interest, I would say, is early modern print culture. Oh, okay. And so for the works of John, John Dee, they were very private and not meant to be circulated. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Although it's a long story, and I'm not sure if we have time for that, but he basically these were, I mean, one type of his manuscripts uh, and diaries are so-called angelic conversations, which are kind of magical sessions, esoteric sessions, trying to communicate with angels. Mm -hmm. And although he did not mean it to be public, but he was trying to sell these diaries to certain uh, rulers because he was looking for patronage. And I one see. of these rulers was Rudolf II and his very, very interesting Prague court. I do want to get to um, the occult in, in a bit, but I do, I do have to ask, um, in terms of things that are more broadly um, published, what sort of writings about the occult and about sort of mysteries were circulated um, broadly or printed or things that were meant to be read by the public, um, by contrast? 
Well, this is a very wide-ranging topic, and the type of sources are also very wide-ranging. Mm-hmm. One of my many interests is the relationship between the visual and the verbal. And uh, in occultism, in the esoteric, there is a very strong stress on symbolism, various types of symbolism. And, of course, these symbols can come as verbal symbols, metaphors, uh, allegories, but uh, very, very heavily they also come in the visual arts and non-arts, just like sigils, amulets, um, special marks and uh, formulas and things like that. So I, I try to embrace all these as much as I can. And of course, uh, a great amount of this source comes from manuscript sources. Okay, and when you're talking about marks, are these something that would have been recognizable by most people, in your opinion? You know, the sort of whole evil eye tradition and the abracadabra amulets, or was it a bit more complicated than that? Well, depends how you approach uh, these questions and also how what sort of person you were to approach it in the early modern period or in the Middle Ages. Obviously, there were scholars belonging to the intellectual elite. Actually, there's a very interesting historical term for this kind of people. Many of them belong to the so-called intellectual underground or clerical underground who were trained at universities but dropped out, did not necessarily become priests and kind of uh, navigated in the darker avenues of life or back streets of life, you know, Uh and uh, eventually making a living out of that, giving predictions or astrology or things like that. Very interesting. And in terms of the sort sort of things that, you know, they were doing, I mean, you you refer to John Dee as a magician. of Elizabeth uh, the First of England, but what exactly was he doing? But what what sort of things did he specialize in? Uh, let's say he had a very very interesting career. Uh, when you read intellectual histories or science histories of the early modern period, the most common pattern you come across in these books is a development from magic to science, a kind of evolutionary thinking that, yes, many people were coming out of the dark Middle Ages doing experiments and then mm-hmm. becoming uh, enlightened scholars by the 18th century. Now, John Dee's career is exactly the opposite. He starts as a mathematician, as a humanist, studying Greek and Latin and reading classical authors. And through these readings and also getting acquainted with certain medieval traditions, uh, some of it is not public or semi-public traditions, like uh, there's something which is called the clavicula solomonis tradition and other kinds of spells and magical rituals. He basically became more and more interested in the esoteric sciences. So from mathematics, he moved to a kind of Neoplatonic esotericism. He was inspired in this by the Florentine Neoplatonists and other philosophers. And finally, he ended up with an extremely primitive technique of magic, which is called crystallomancy, crystal gazing hoping that the angels would appear in the crystal and would tell him important things. Now, this crystal gazing was really a primitive technique, most of the time used for uh, finding lost treasures or or things like that. But John Dee wanted to use it for a different purpose, because his idea was to learn the lingua adamica, the language of Adam, or the language of uh, prelapsarian communication between humans and God before the fall. Mm -hmm. And he thought that learning this language would provide that absolutely perfect knowledge, what all Renaissance people craved, 
he's a kind of white Dr. Faustus. Yes, Faustus yes. is <laughs> willing to, to sell his soul for knowledge. Now, John D. didn't want to sell his soul. He wanted to stay on the safe side, <laughs> talk to the angel, learn the language of Adam from the angels, and thus talk to God. So it was a, a very curious religious program. And uh, basically, this is what he did in the last uh, 25 years of his life. Why crystallomancy? I mean, you said earlier that it was, you know, mostly used for finding lost items, but why did he sort of feel that this was this, an avenue uh, to get to this uh, language? And uh, That's a very crucial question, I think, about early modern psychology, that he really started uh, searching for rationalistic or more rationalistic means for gaining omniscience or super knowledge which was his his ultimate goal mm -hmm. and he got disappointed step by step just like Dr. Faustus actually in in the play that Faustus also tries law and medicine and right. uh, Aristotle's logic and other things and he gets disappointed and the last resort is to go to magic and to turn to the devil now John Dee went to magic but still tried to turn to God and the angels so it's in a way it's in a way something which is even common with us in the 20th 21st century a disappointment in the Enlightenment project, in rationality, and turning to alternative sources of knowledge. Ironically enough, I do know a lot of friends from college who who sort of fit into that mold and that, and, you know, a lot of them started out, you know, oh, I'm going to be an electrical engineer, and then took a couple of classes and decided to hell with this, I'm studying history. Oh, you see. <laughs> <laughs> so it does happen out there, um, surprisingly, but... Uh, uh, but even more seriously, if you think of uh, neo-paganism or neo-satanism oh, or yes. new age religions, I mean, these are very serious oh. intellectual trends, popular trends at the same time in, in modern culture. And, and a lot of scholars, sociologists, psychologists are mm -hmm, mm -hmm. trying to figure out why. What is the motivation behind? How very interesting. Um, we started out talking in the first segment about uh, English literature and got a little bit distracted, but uh, one of the things that I did uh, want to ask you is um, just uh, I want to start with a pragmatic question, you know. How do you go about um, accessing these primary sources that you're working with? Yeah, actually, in the years when I was studying and even when I was a, a young teacher, so basically we are talking about the 1970s, 1980s, it was really very, very difficult to get to primary sources. Uh, coming from Hungary, right. you would not have scholarships, or even if you had a scholarship for a week or so and get lost in, in an Oxford library, <laughs> what do you do? And as a result of this particular situation, the direction of studies in Hungary, of English studies, especially focusing on earlier literature, was basically literary analysis uh, backed by theoretical trends because we had at least access to modern books, various oh, sure, uh, theoretical trends, uh, let it be structuralism or post-structuralism later on. And, of course, the result was a kind of a crooked situation that you analyze a Shakespeare play or an Edmund Spencer or a Milton poem mm -hmm. on the basis of some theory, but actually you don't have the historical sources, the historical context around it. I was personally very lucky because I got some scholarships um, almost by chance, but there's no time to tell <laughs> the circumstances to get to uh, England and America, primarily first time I went to America for a longer period, and I worked in the Folger Shakespeare Library and oh, in the Huntington Library in uh, Los Angeles. So those were fantastic chances yeah. to get to primary sources. But most of my colleagues and my students had no such chances. 
From the 1990s, the situation changed because various exchange programs started, especially the Tempus program, which later developed into the Erasmus exchange. So there were possibilities to go to uh, Western European and sometimes American universities. And a very interesting new challenge came around, I would say, 2000. This is the uh, kind of the peak of the, or the beginning of the peak of the digitization projects all over the world. And what happens in the Anglo-Saxon world, that huge projects were started. One of them is, uh, it's a good example, is the EBO. It's called um, Early English Books Online done by private companies. Basically, they digitized in a searchable way all the books printed in England and in English from the beginning, that is late 15th century, to 1700. Oh, right. So that would be a heaven for uh, any researcher. Uh, you could even get different versions, different editions of the same text, and you could see the changing of that. Mm-hmm. However, this database and many other similar databases is extremely expensive. So basically, right. no Hungarian university or library can afford to subscribe for that. I see. Which basically reproduced and recreated the situation of the intellectual Iron Curtain. And uh, we are still in this situation. So I try to urge my students to get to primary sources. It would be theoretically on the internet, but they don't have access to that. And this is a very sad cultural, political question and situation within the EU, if you if you think into that. It's unfortunate. I have to, you know, g- going off on a little side tangent here, I mean, for me personally, it was, uh, as an American saying, I want to study medieval Hungary. It was very difficult for me back in the U.S. because usually there were always two responses. One is, oh, that's neat. Or the other one was, why? Mm-hmm. And uh, getting access to primary sources in some ways, you know, I could take advantage of interlibrary loan a little bit, or um, if you live near a, a decent library, there might be a few things to work with, but it's still, in some ways, the Iron, the, the iron Curtain has fallen, and we have access to, for American scholars, they now have access to a lot of very good archives that weren't completely inaccessible 20 years mm-hmm. ago, but mm-hmm. for um, American medievalists, it's still very rare for a lot of them to go, you know, east of the Rhine River, or there's starting to be a change to that for areas like Scandinavia, the Mediterranean as well, but um, for Poland, Hungary, um, the Balkans uh, especially, there's really a need for, I think, a lot more of an information exchange. So I sympathize with you very much. Yeah. However, there are also very interesting uh, new developments, and one of these factors is Google Books. Oh, yes. Fair uh, let me tell you a mm-hmm. funny story that from this summer. I've had three Mellon scholarships to Wolf and Buttel, which is uh, one of the best uh, 17th century libraries in Europe, and actually it is the national collection for the 17th century in Germany. Oh. And I have an incredible 16th, 17th century book stock. So all my esoteric interests and everything uh, could be found there. And uh, the first scholarship was in 95. Then I was there in 2002 and finally this summer. In, on the previous occasions, I was heavily copying long Latin texts from those books which are not available in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And what I did this summer was that I checked out the book from their book stock, looked into that, and then I wrote the title of the book into Google Books, and in many, many cases, a facsimile came up. (laughs) Unbelievably. Interestingly, most of the books were scanned in Germany, so Germany is really leading. 
in in this project and uh, and it's free you don't pay yes, for that yes. so anyway coming back mm-hmm. to my original what what i wanted to tell about that one friend from england asked me to check out a hungarian related uh, it's something like um, how is it called a broadsheet it's just a few few pages uh, kind of newspaper news about some 17th century hungarian historical event which is in wolfenbüttel he told that he would very badly need that checked it out okay then i wrote it in google books and it came up a little hungarian german language booklet and i wrote to him that Hey friend in London you could sit to your computer and you could yes. download it for yourself you don't need to write to me in Wolfenbüttel to get it and he was completely baffled you know he had no idea about this possibility oh, funny. so this is how the digital age changes actually our circumstances sure, sure. and i i mean on one hand there's obviously the copyright issue but for me i've been able to take advantage of google books where um an excavation report from the 1860s of the royal uh-huh. medieval hungarian basilica was available uh, to to me back um, when I was working at the University of Maryland and it was hmm. very 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 useful to which me. which basilica is that uh, Sekesfehervar uh-huh. so the yeah. used to be a grand imposing structure the burial place of Saint Stephen uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. some really interesting uh, um, archaeological uh, episodes going on there but uh, lots of very bizarre things going on in the actual report itself once it's written but a very good source for me mm-hmm. so I think um, there's there's a lot to be said for I think taking advantage of this technology mm-hmm. and at the same time it's for Google Books and for a lot of the um, the stuff that th- these are published um, yes, issues that yes, we're talking yes. about it's so much more difficult with manuscripts obviously you have to go to the places there are certain ways you can get around that like for Hungary for instance there's the charter database has the mm-hmm. a scan mm-hmm. of them posted mm-hmm. online but one um, you have to know how to read a 12th century charter which is a skill in and of itself and second of all there's um, some of the scans were made of photocopies of pictures uh-huh. taken back in the 1960s or scans of photos of microfilm so it says that there's a charter there and you go and you look at it and it's completely illegible. I can tell you a story in connection with that as well. Uh-huh. Uh, British Library. Uh, actually, this is my wife's work, not my own, but <clears throat> we were there together uh, working on different aspects. She's a historian anthropologist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, she wanted to check out uh, a book which is actually a Hungarian book and somehow it was donated to the British Library at one point. They have it on in a digitized version. So first of all, they didn't want to give the book to her. Right. They said that study the the mic. Well, it's not a microfilm. It's <laughs> a it's a scan. Uh, but uh, it was not legible well enough. So she insisted, and after a terrible struggle, she managed to get the book. Uh-huh. And she found extremely interesting uh, inscriptions in that book uh, by various students, Hungarian, actually Transylvanian students, who used that book as a school book in the 19th century. And she wanted to get a copy of those, primarily because of the inscriptions, because otherwise uh, she had the book. Right. And they said that for copyright reasons, there is no way of making a photocopy of those pages in which little Joe in Transylvania wrote in that, what a stupid text this is, or something <laughs> like this. You know, it's absolutely unbelievable. It's uh, overdoing the... And I, I don't know what is the legal base. I mean, what sort of copyright aspect is that? But they 
She couldn't get it. Ah, oh, for heaven's sakes. I, I, certain libraries tend to feel so, so very overprotective of yes, the works that yes. it's almost, in, in some cases, it it's almost makes the source completely inaccessible, which makes you question why it's there in the first place if no one can actually read it or use it or look at it. One thing I did want to ask you is that, in addition to John Dee, what sort of uh, other English authors have you spent a lot of time looking at uh, in your career so far? Spencer, Edmund mm-hmm. Spencer, the Renaissance poet who wrote very interesting philosophical poems about love, for example, inspired by these Neoplatonic theories of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, my so-called small doctorate, which was a university doctorate uh, back in the 1980s, was devoted to Christopher Marlowe and okay. his intellectual context, especially in relation to magic and Dr. Faustus. I've written at least a dozen articles, uh, essays about Shakespeare, various mm-hmm. aspects of Shakespeare, especially magical themes in Prospero and uh, characters like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, one more interest of mine, which is modern literature in modern fiction. Whenever fiction relies on Renaissance magic or esoteric themes, so I have also published a couple of essays on not only English novels, but I've dealt with German, Hungarian, French novels as well. How cool! And it is very interesting that how this uh, the discreet charm of the esoteria inspires modern fiction writers and postmodern fiction writers. One of my favorites is, of course, Umberto Eco's uh, Foucault's Pendulum, which is a famous and very satirical novel uh, about this intellectual trend. Oh, very cool. And um, I mean, just a small question that's very large. I mean, for, for these Renaissance authors like Spencer and Marlowe and Shakespeare, I mean... How does magic work in the Renaissance? How does magic work? I think that to some extent all of them believed in it in one way or another. It Mm -hmm. was really an integral part of the world picture. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, This world picture which actually is rooted in the Middle Ages and it, it is a slightly modernized form of the medieval world picture. Uh, the big changes happened sometime in the 17th century, early 18th century, uh, parallel with the scientific revolution, the Newtonian world picture, and other developments, the rising of rationalism, Descartes, and Enlightenment. However, the esoteric world picture does not disappear, but it ceases to be an integral part of the received world picture. So from this time on, I'm inclined to call it a kind of a counterculture, a, a kind of... Uh, consciousness of humanity pointing out the mistakes or possible dangers of the changing towards this rationalistic world picture. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. A lot of the way people view the Middle Ages or the Renaissance even is through things like video games or for Mm -hmm. movies where there's a very clear distinction made there between, you know, what you can call white magic like healing and love spells Mm -hmm. and sort of black magic where you're raising the dead and cursing your neighbors. Was that distinction sort of present, in your opinion, in the Renaissance? And oh, yes, absolutely. But okay. there's a very significant sociological observation in connection with that, and um, scholars of religion pointed that out, that one group's white magician is always the witch of another group. So, Fair enough. you know, <laughs> when you look at your neighbor, you bring your suspicions and biases, and uh, at the same time, within your own group, it doesn't work like that necessarily. <clears throat> so it is the, <laughs> I would say, the theoretical questions of othering. 
are very, very significant in, in this field as well. When you accuse somebody of black magic or white magic, and of course within a group or thinking of individuals, I don't know of any example from the Middle Ages or the early modern period that somebody calls that I'm a black magician. I'm making a pact with the devil. We don't know that the historical Faustus who actually lived, he was a German and has been identified, he never said this about himself. It's only the kind of legends which and other people's opinion which develop about him. Oh, very interesting. For this particular segment, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is... Um, I mean, we, we've mentioned cultural uh, history a while back, and I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on your theoretical approach. It's very fun to say, you know, oh, I research magic in the Renaissance. I mean, I think it's amazing. But in terms of sort of practical aspects, that's something that I'm, I, I'm curious about. How do you how do you go about conceptualizing it, and uh, how do you go about um, creating a theoretical framework to make writing about magic uh, meaningful to modern audiences? Okay. Uh, the history of my theoretical development goes back to the 1970s when I went to university. And of course, in Hungary, the official line was Marxism and everything had to interpret it through the filter of a kind of socialist Marxism, which was quite different from Western Marxism, I must uh, right. add here. And uh, by the early 80s, when I started my teacher's career with uh, some of my colleagues from the same generation, we were looking for ways out of this uh, kind of cage or constraint. And we found a very interesting trend for ourselves. This is what is usually remembered as the Warburgian, Abi Warburgian cultural history connected with art history as well. Abi Warburg was a, a German uh, art historian and cultural historian around the turning of the 19th and 20th centuries. He is uh, famous for his library, which was arranged uh, according to topics. So this was one of the first open shelf, open access libraries very much inspiring kind of interdisciplinary scholarship. And he himself uh, developed very interesting ideas about what he called cultural archaeology, uh, looking for basically this um, reception of ideas, received ideas through generations. Uh, his primary research question was, how did the antiquity was reborn in the Renaissance? He was a Renaissance scholar. So anyway, this was a, a more intellectual history, cultural history without the ballast of Marxist things. And we tried to practice this, introduce this in Hungary and practice this in the 1980s. And a really big shock came in 1987 when I had a Fulbright scholarship to the United States, went to the Forger Shakespeare Library with this program in mind that I'm going to expand on it and study Warburgian cultural history. And then from the first day on, all the guest lecturers, all the symposia, whatever was around there was heavily Marxist and basically subverting and undermining all my ideas with which I came there. Uh -huh. So it was really a very, very serious cultural shock. And I had to kind of reconfigure myself definitely and significantly. And the leading trend at that time was the so-called new historicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. New historicism then influenced me very strongly. This was uh, partly Marxist, kind of Western Marxist, partly Foucauldian. Michel Foucault is one of the major uh, authorities in that. 
And if I want to reduce it to one sentence, new historicism was about to look for the motivations, the agendas of historians. So they said that there is no neutral, no objective, absolute history because every history telling is basically a storytelling in a way and the author's agenda will appear in that. Of course, Hayden White is another major authority in this respect for Mm -hmm. historians. So I got inspired by this. I accepted this. And when I returned from the United States, the first article I wrote, it was in 1988, it was an analysis of Hungarian Shakespeare scholarship showing how Marxist Shakespeare scholars try to filter through Shakespeare, you know, with their ideological agenda. So I kind of turned back (laughs) Marxism against Marxism in a way in that article. funny. And I would say that ever since I tried to combine these two extremes, this kind of new historicist kind of things with an earlier type of cultural history, and I tried to find the best uh, out of both of these, and and uh, that I would say fairly successfully can be applied to the study of esotericism as well. Sure, sure, sure. There's, there's a lot of um, very different ways to approach the material that you're working with. And I think for me, um, I used to hate any sort of discussion about theory, mostly because a lot of it is, in my experience, very poorly written, so as to be almost incomprehensible. But only, only in the last couple of years, I've really started to see the utility of it in terms of the research questions that I'm asking where someone can give me an article that's like, oh, read this very ponderous, you know, tome of archaeological theory, but I'll I'll pour through it and I will, for every, you know, 200 pages where I'm like, oh, this is awful, oh, this is awful, oh, this is awful, there's always that one page in there that's like, this is really, really amazing, I like this idea, I like this idea, mm-hmm. I like this idea. And um, asking new questions, I think, is one of the really, really very exciting things about doing work about uh, history and, uh, and, and culture. Yeah, I think that very inspiring changes took place in the 1980s. Um, one of these changes can be derived from the famous uh, verdict of François Lyotard, one of the founding fathers of post-structuralism or postmodern. In his article, The Postmodern Condition, he says that the number one thing we don't like anymore and we hate is the grand narratives. Because grand narratives always try to make you believe that history could happen only in one way as it's explained in that grand narrative. And when you lift the grand narratives in the void, in the space, all sorts of other interesting questions are coming up. A major turn around this period was the so-called corporeal turn, the interest for the body. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, 70s, nobody talked about the body. Everybody was interested in the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. how the intellect developed throughout history. And now we have a completely new aspect involving the body, gender questions, sexuality, and a number of other things which were simply not discussed in, in historical studies before. And the other thing I think in terms of uh, new questions being asked in the, the 80s, um, again going back to Foucault, who we mentioned earlier, is uh, how we conceptualize power, um, obviously um, today, but also in sort of power relations in the um, in whatever time period that you're studying. And mm-hmm. um, I bring it up mostly because looking through your CV, I see that um, you, you've done a lot of um, you've done a lot of work on sort of iconography and symbols of power. Mm-hmm. 
in the past. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Oh, no, not, not <laughs> at all. Uh, actually, let me clarify this oh. immediately that I'm not a Foucauldian. Oh, I sure. uh, have read Foucault and I appreciate a lot of things in Foucault, but I think that if we leave Foucault alone, on the theoretical field, then we are going to get some extremely distorted results. Yes. The counterpart of Foucault, more or less from the same period, would be the German philosopher Gadamer, who is the founder of hermeneutics. Okay, yeah. And Gadamer's main thesis is that culture works through tradition, that tradition is passed from generation to generation, and this uh, continuity of culture will build culture up. Foucault says just the opposite. He says that culture is discontinuous, it's fragmented, and there's no continuity in history. I try to reduce these two oppositional points to the opposition of tradition and subversion. Mm -hmm. And my point is that if you say that culture is only tradition, then it becomes completely boring because there's no change in it. If you say right. that culture is only subversion, it means that there's no comprehension because if you constantly cut the threads which connect you to the past, then you right. won't understand anything. <laughs> and the nice way of things working is really the dynamics, the dialectics of tradition and subversion. Sure, sure, sure. Is the sort of dynamic of change versus tradition, old ways versus new ways, some sort of scene uh, in a lot of the primary sources that you're working with? Absolutely, yes. Uh, just coming back to literature, but in a way it could be said with some modifications about historical sources as well, but I think that great literature is only great when it has subvertive elements. Mm. It connects to tradition, it revisits tradition, but the exciting thing when it comes to questions, questioning it, doubting it, uh, provoking it in some ways, and, and um, this is how it gives food for others to think it over and uh, move on. So, and I, 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 I'd have to agree with that because, I mean, it's the 21st century and there are still high school children reading things like The Taming of the Shrew and, you know, being asked the question, is Shakespeare a feminist? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm not saying that happens in every high school. We had a choice between Taming of the Shrew or Romeo and Juliet, and we picked Taming of the Shrew because we were like, ew, we don't like mushy stuff. <laughs> anyway, my students would know it very well that one of my hobby horses is the term the interpretive community. Mm -hmm. There's no culture, there's no opinion actually without taking the interpretive com community uh, into consideration. Uh, every cultural representation is what, what the interpretive community uses it for. That's my guiding line. And I try to find out the motivations and the dynamics of the interpretive community, why they do this or that with a particular cultural representation. To that, you can also add the question, who is the audience? Because um, in some cases, I mean, again, if it's a very private thing that's only meant to be seen by a few, for instance, trying to get a patron like Rudolph II, it might be different than something that's going to be circulated uh, amongst the masses, theoretically. Yes, I think today these dividing lines are very much blurred, and uh, our culture is much more open and uh, full of cross-sections, even more. In every age, of course, culture is never homogeneous. But uh, but today when you, you blog mm -hmm. and you immediately make it public, you know, on the Internet, you even sure. disclose your most secret photos on the Internet. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> which is pretty shocking from time to time. <laughs> the audience is everywhere and everybody is the audience. And you have to trace these various discourses between the actors of the audience to figure out how they think about it or what they use it for. Alrighty, well... We've had a very interesting talk, and I'm I'm very sad that the interview is about to be over. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you uh, before we uh, got off the air is um, sort of about projects that you're working on now, or, or or that you plan on working on in the future. Yes, let me just single out one because it will be too long to talk okay. about all the projects <laughs> I'm involved with. My greatest ongoing project is writing a cultural history of Enoch, the biblical. Uh, patriarch. How I got to Enoch is very interesting. John Dee, when he was looking for this uh, omniscience and perfect knowledge through the angels, he writes in his diary that he would like to be like Enoch, who was chosen by God, taking in his life to God and being able to talk to God. So he actually calls the lingua adamica, the Adamic language, also the Enochian language. And this is how I became interested in Enoch. And it turned out for me that Enoch is only briefly mentioned in the Bible, but there's a huge apocryphal literature uh, about him. Really? Various books of Enoch, one in, in the Ethiopic language and canonized as a book of the Ethiopic Bible. There is a big uh, Jewish book about him, uh, kind of semi-unofficial book, which inspired a lot of Kabbalistic and other speculations. And I simply started going through history from the uh, late antiquity to today. And you would not believe what a... Let me just stick to this last yes. segment already. <laughs> I've already published uh, some medieval chapters and Renaissance chapters of this history. But Enoch is a very big figure even today in modern esoteria. There are Enochian circles who are trying to recreate and continue John Dee's Enochian magic. Mm. Uh, he appears in films, in fiction. One film a couple of years ago, there was a very funny and in a way provoking film called Dogma by two yes. American yeah. uh, film directors. And uh, actually, Enoch appears in it as the angel Metatron, because according to the Jewish version, Enoch in heaven, when he was taken by God, he was transformed to Metatron, and Metatron is the regent of God in heaven. And another very interesting cultural uh, representation is the novel of Philip Pullman, which also created a lot of discussion. It's called His Dark Materials. It's a fantasy trilogy. And uh, Metatron appears as one of the most evil characters in the book. So you have a huge, uh, <laughs> a wide range of various interpretations of Enoch and his uh, transfiguration into to Metatron in, in various periods, in various culture. William Blake wrote about it. Milton wrote about it. So there's uh, a lot to write about for me as well. It sounds absolutely fascinating, and uh, we look forward to hearing about it in the future. I hope I will have the time <laughs> to write it. The strength is there, but the time is a problem. Well, um, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come and talk with us on uh, CU Medieval Radio. It's been a real pleasure having you today. My pleasure. Thank you for the good questions. And for the listeners at home, uh, we thank you very much for tuning in. Um, be sure to uh, listen to us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu/radio. Uh, be sure to send us an email at medievalradio@ceu.hu, and be sure to like our Facebook page. Thank you uh, once again so much for listening to us. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>